0: Last week, we looked at Matthew 16 and Matthew 16 in the context of today's world. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And that's ultimately the question that every person will have to grapple with as they um, consider Christ and what he has said about himself and what the word has said about him. Then we traced uh, the history of thought just very briefly, and um, at the point of being overly simplistic and reductionistic, we traced the past uh, 400 years or so uh, history of thought just so that we could understand, one, how do we get here today, and how how do we get to the point where a man is identifying as a woman and everybody's saying, you're right, Uh, how do we get here? But more importantly, how has, how has the history of thought uh, moved from a foundation that uh, Dr. Wellam in the book would say is the epistemological warrant uh, for what we know? Uh, what's the grounding? How has it moved from revelation, God's revelation of himself, and how has that moved to something else today, namely human reason uh, or the will to power through speech and, and what have you in postmodernism. Uh, and then we, we transitioned from looking at Rene Descartes and the Enlightenment and modernism and then postmodernism to a little bit of the basics of, of biblical hermeneutics or the biblical interpretation. And we talked about. Reading and interpreting the Scripture according to the Bible's own terms and according to the Bible's own categories, which, uh, as as we'll look at today, uh, we'll see that the Enlightenment and the modernist age, and much of theological scholarship over the past two two hundred and fifty years, has largely departed from a biblical foundation. Uh, or a biblical presentation of who Jesus is, and um, the Old Testament pointing to Him. So I wanna, I wanna, I wanna talk about just a couple of couple of things, um, just as as way of reminder, and I wanna make sure that we are understanding that when we're talking about interpreting the Bible. Uh, what is what is it that we're trying to capture when we're reading the text and and we're seeking to understand? What 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 are we trying to do? The meaning, obviously, but what is that grounded in? Context. Context. The intent of the of human Yeah, authorial intent, right? So in in any book in any book, of course it would do this to me. Um of course. I curse you there we go I like blue better anyway authorial intent okay what what is what's authorial intent and don't just use the words don't just use the words turn like let's redefine it what is authorial intent original intent, original intent. what's intent Yeah, what the person writing whatever you're reading, what, what they mean, what they've purposed, and what they're writing and how they're writing it, right? So authorial intent is exceptionally important. Uh, postmodernism will say that meaning is not grounded in authorial intent. Postmodernism will teach you that, that meaning is primarily grounded in how the reader responds to the text. So you give the text meaning. There is not meaning in the text itself. Uh, And that's largely because they reject a big A author. There's no metanarrative. There's no author. Give the thing meaning. Uh, Okay, now, Takoda, you mentioned two aspects of of, uh, Scripture. As it relates to Scripture and authorial intent, it's important for us to understand the authorial intent of who? So, the human author and the divine author. We talked about, okay, how do, we, how do we understand the divine author's intent? And that's partly in and through the human author, right? The human author and the divine author in Scripture, if Scripture is inerrant, it's without error, if it's infallible, if it's God's very word, His revelation of Himself, these aren't going to be in conflict, but one of the ways, one of the primary ways in which we understand divine authorial intent in Scripture is understanding it at the canonical level or the whole Bible level of interpretation. And so it is very, very important uh, what, Paul, uh, what Moses meant regarding men in marriage in Genesis 2.24. A man shall... Leave his wife, or leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Uh, it's very important what Moses means by that. Ultimately, he's laying a foundation for the institution of human marriage. That's to continue for until the new creation, right? That's prior to sin, and we understand it in light of Moses' context. But it's also really important, if we're going to try and capture the, the divine author's intended meaning in marriage, To read marriage in light of Genesis to Revelation. And that grounds our unity in the scriptures, right? Because there's one divine author, even though there are dozens of human authors, there's one divine author behind it all. And he's writing a unified canon that's all pointing to Christ. And that's why we can do what we talked about last week biblical theology, or understanding the storyline of scripture. Uh, and then working out theological conclusions. So it's important when Moses says about marriage in Genesis 2.24, but then it's also really important for us to understand what the prophets are talking about as it relates to marriage. Because the prophets talk about marriage, but they cast Yahweh as the, as the husband, and Israel as an unfaithful bride. And so we could say, oh, okay, well that's kind of like an analogy of sorts. Well, but then the Lord himself talks about it. talks about giving Israel a decree of divorce, uh, threatening to divorce her. Uh, But then Jesus comes along, and John the Baptist talks about Jesus in light of the bridegroom language. And he's come for his bride. And then all of a sudden, Paul is talking about, yeah, Genesis 2.24, and they shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but it's actually referring to Christ and the church. So, Paul's saying, yeah, grounded in Genesis 2.24, the ultimate meaning behind that, the grand meaning to which it points, is ultimately Christ and the church. Not because Moses necessarily knew, yeah, Jesus and his, relation, his covenant relationship with the New Covenant Church, but primarily because it was pointing in that direction beyond just a human relationship between a covenant partner husband and a covenant partner wife. And so then all of a sudden we see marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And we talk about the consummation uh, of the new creation and it's cast in light of a wedding. Like there's more to it. So ultimately marriage doesn't find its fulfillment in any of our relationships with our spouses. And that's why Jesus can say to the Sadducees who, who give him the example of the woman who had seven husbands and they were all brothers because they kept dying. Who's Whose husband will she be in heaven? They, they didn't, or in the resurrection, because they denied the resurrection. Jesus w- will tell them, like, "Don't." It, it, it's clear that you don't know the scriptures, uh, because there's no marriage in heaven. Why? Because marriage will f- have will have found its fulfillment in the new creation, Christ and the church. So all that all that to say, again. We can understand the divine in, intentions of the author, the divine author's intentions in any particular text through the human author, but when we zoom out, that gives us the best lens by which we can see what the Lord is intending when He's talking in Genesis three fifteen of a promised son who will crush the head of the serpent. Does that make sense? Okay, so with authorial intent. Uh, we're reading it according to the purposes of the person writing or person's writing whatever story right but then we uh, also talked about um, a very very important part of biblical interpretation is understanding the what of a particular text like this this was it would be what many biblical scholars would be like this is kind of that this is the Primary identifier in, in biblical interpretation of any particular text is trying to understand the what of the text. Um, it starts with a G. We talked about not doing allegorical interpretation unless it's allegory. Why do we why do we interpret allegory allegorically? That's, the, that's how it's supposed to be interpreted, because that's, that's the genre, the genre of, of the text. And so, we can read words, Jake, Kevin, or postmodern guys to talk about words being locution, and we can see the intended f- effect of speech. But the way in which someone says something is really important to understanding and capturing meaning. So, when uh, I say um, something like, did you see the sunset or did you see the sunrise this morning? Do I mean by that statement that the sun rotates around the earth and in every morning we can see the sun rising as the earth is stationary? and we're the center of the universe, of the galaxy, and the sun is rotating around us, and it literally rises and goes around in a circle? Right? No. Why? That's metaphorical speech, right? That's metaphor to describe something, something that's, at, that's, that's happening in reality. So I don't mean that the sun is literally rising and rotating around us, but simply describing a natural phenomenon in human language. And, and if you were to say, you know that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth right if i said like hey did you go to the beach and see the sunrise would you be would you be interpreting me according to the intentions of the author and according to the genre of literary devices i was using no of course not i'd be like you idiot why are you interpreting me literalistically i just meant did you see the sun like when we could first see the light uh, the beginning of any day. So genre, we don't read Genesis the same way that we ra- read Romans. We don't see, read Romans the same way that we read the Psalms or the Proverbs. We don't read the Proverbs and the Psalms in the same way that we read the Prophets. Uh, we don't read the book of Revelation, which is re- it's apocalyptic literature. That's a genre, but there's a whole lot of different types of uh, literature inside that. We don't read that like we're reading Ephesians. Otherwise, you're going to be like, there are going to be literal locusts. <laughs> and they said, look at the Lamb of God, and it was actually a lion. So it is a lion-lamb composite, or that angel was mistaken. No, it's, it's again, we're trying to interpret according to the, the divine human author's intended meaning, genre of literature, Medical, uh, metaphorical devices we want to un- interpret and understand in light of metaphor uh, in order to capture this authorial intent so we we said all that because one of the ways in which we understand divine authorial intent at the canonical level and i've talked about this in sermons we talked about it this past week one of these aspects is topology And we and we use the word topology, it's coming from the study of types. And we talk about types because the Bible talks about types. Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ. Melchizedek you know, is cast as a type of Christ in the book of Hebrews. And so topology in many ways is just is biblical interpretation at the canonical level. But but and, and this this is so important topology is not allegorical interpretation it's not allegorical interpretation is allegorical interpretation of historical narrative like genesis is that a right understanding of the genre to 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 interpret genesis which is historical narrative as allegory should we do that because when we do that and you read the book of Joshua, that's when you get Rahab's scarlet cord and that's Jesus and the cross, right? And we get laughed at, and rightfully so, right? So we understand John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is allegory, and we interpret it allegorical, allegorically. Why? Because John Bunyan intended it that way, right? Topology is not that. Allegory is not grounded in the text. It's giving us spiritual meaning, a heavenly meaning that's not at all tied to the text. That actually reflects more of postmodern hermeneutics. That's, given the, that's giving the text meaning. That's you not trying to capture the person who, or persons who are writing it. So we don't want to do that as we're thinking about Jesus So like in, across the storyline. So I say all these things because we're going to spend a lot of time this evening talking about the storyline of Scripture and understanding Christ in it. But Jesus isn't under every rock, okay? And for us to, to treat him as, you know, every, every rock, every bush, every, every little thing is, is a Jesus, that's misunderstanding. That's misunderstanding topology. That's misunderstanding prophecy and promise fulfillment. And that's misunderstanding that when the New Testament talks about Old Testament promises, and God's promises in the Old Testament, finding us, yes, in him and amen in Christ, is talking about as an entire package coming over pointing to Jesus. Not every rock in every verse, there's a Jesus underneath it if you lift it up. Does that make sense? Again, we don't want to be postmodern in our thinking. We don't want to give meaning to the text that's not there. Otherwise, we're giving it meaning that God has not. We don't want to distort it. This, oftentimes, people start with good intentions and in distorting it. And then that's how you get heresy. So, topology, uh, I'm pretty sure we talked about the four rules um, of topology. It's uh, grounded in the what? It's grounded in the text of Scripture. Right? And there's, there's uh, does it happen, does a type happen one time and that's it? Or is there repetition? There's repetition. And that's how we can, that's how we can know Okay, I'm not just making this up. Marriage is across the canon. I'm not adding, Paul's not adding to that in Ephesians 5. He's not saying, oh, you know, that's one flesh. That's kind of like Christ in the church. He's not giving, no, the meaning's there. It's been in, it's, he's just unveiling it for us in Christ. What else? Is it just a flat line across the storyline? Right there's escalation right and and who is it always escalating to Jesus Jesus is Jesus Christ is always what we call the anti-type the fulfillment of the type and then last thing a type can be what people place <laughs> <a> noun <laughs> event Let's let's get examples of this. People, what, what's what's one biblical type? Adam. Adam. What kind of what's a place? What's a what's an example of a place that is presented as a type? Eden. Eden. That's right. What about an event? Right, like Exodus. Exodus, because that, yeah, event. So yeah, but I mean you're right. Uh, the Exodus event. That's a type of Christ. Uh, we talked about it this past Sunday, the flood. Noah's flood, that's that's a type. Peter says that's a type. Um, and then, uh, person, place, event, or thing, thing being like Passover lamb, non-person. Um, right, okay, yeah. Uh, so this would be text, which is grounded in actual history. It's not just... Um, It's not a theological history that's been made up it's a it's actually grounded in real events and we just have god's interpretation of it okay um what are the three horizons that we talked about in any given text that we're reading we want to interpret it in light of what yeah close close or textual what's the next one what's the close or textual context Right. Like the grammatical, historical, Isaiah 49 in Isaiah. Yep. Yeah. What's the next one? What's that? Continual. Continual, Continual or epochal? What's, uh, what's that? When in that, like age, epoch, what's the best way of understanding that particular epoch? Another word starts with a C. No, that's the last interpretation. So, covenantal. covenantal, right? So, another way of understanding epoch, because you're like, okay, well, how do you define an epoch? What covenant? So, what covenant is Isaiah writing in the context of? Well, he's writing in light of the Edemic, or creation covenant, Abraham, or Noah and Abraham, Israelite, or Mosaic, old covenant, but also Davidic. Right? He's writing on the other side of God making promises to David, so he's expecting a Davidic son. Which is why he's talking about it in Isaiah 11, like the shoot of Jesse, a new David, uh, and then obviously in the old in the New Testament it would be um, the new covenant context. So, but then there's distinctions between like reading Matthew and reading the Book of Revelation. So, what's the last context? Zoom out all the way, complete or canonical. That's right. Yep. Okay. Um, so, two, two, two points uh, for today that's going to kind of guide our, our talking today and into next week and then the week after that and then the week after that and then every week that I ever teach here, we will be talking about these two different aspects of biblical interpretation that I did not talk about last week. And the first is that uh, we need to understand the redemptive storyline, which is the the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, finding its fulfillment in Jesus, Jesus being the hero. We need to understand that the progression of the biblical covenants forms the backbone of the biblical storyline. So we talked a little bit about it in terms of the apocalypse horizon of interpretation. But the progression of the biblical covenants forms the backbone of the biblical storyline. So it's not just the biblical covenants. We're not talking about biblical covenants being the theme of Scripture. But the story, as it progresses across the covenants that God makes with His people from Genesis to Revelation, there's greater and greater clarity that's being brought in this progressive revelation. Again, it's not like the Quran with Muhammad falling down. It's a complete book. This is given over time with greater and clarity from start to finish. And we understand the story with greater and greater clarity and specificity as we move from one covenant to the next. We start to interpret promises in a later covenant in light of Earlier promise that that covenant is picking up. For example, what was the promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen? Right? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Jesus. Who said Jesus? <laughs> that is a, yes. Yeah, son of Adam and Eve, offspring of the woman. is going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, if it just stopped there, it'd be like, okay. I mean, that could be anybody. You know, people thought it, thought it was Noah, and he turned out to be a miserable failure, right? So, but then you get to the Abrahamic covenant, and all of a sudden, there's another son that's promised. And now it's not like a universal, it's very specific through Abraham's family. And not even just of Abraham, all of Abraham's offspring, because Ishmael, he'll be blessed because he's the son of Abraham, but this ain't the offspring through whom the nations are going to be blessed, it's, it's through Abraham's offspring that the nations... We, and we, st- we should be thinking, okay, I, this, this later covenant, even though it's fi- only 15 chapters later, like that, that's picking up on Adam and Eve. So now it's not just like the, the father and mother of the human race It's very specific now. It's Abraham and his wife Sarah. And, and then it gets even more specific... With a covenant that God gives to the offspring of of Abraham, uh, of whom Moses is a part, Israel, right? The the Savior is going to come through this particular people. And then there's even greater specificity. Okay, it's not just going to be any son of Adam and Eve, and it's not going to be just a son of Abraham, and it's not going to be just any Israelite, it's going to be the son of David, in the Israelite community, who are the offspring of Abraham, offspring of Adam. So this progression of the biblical covenants helps us to understand the narrative of Scripture and how it's kind of bearing down on Christ. Um, And then, what we'll talk about in depth today, with the time that we have, is, um, so I want you to have in mind progression of the biblical covenants as you're reading Scripture on your own. And as you're sitting under sermons, and as you're sitting in discipleship classes, I want you thinking in these categories and practicing it so that you're actually applying it. Um, another another cat- or category or idea or theme through which I want you to, to be thinking about the, the storyline is the idea of creation, fall, redemption, new creation creation fall redemption new creation creation we see genesis 1 and 2 fall we see in genesis 3. redemption we see the promise begin in genesis 3 and that really carries its way all the way through the rest of the canon right to Jesus. He's the fulfillment. All of the New Testament is about Him. All the Old Testament's about Him. And then ultimately, the new creation that He's bringing. He's the, he's the first citizen of that new creation through His resurrection, right? And in Christ, we have been made new creations because we've been spiritually raised with Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now spiritually renewed, regenerated. And so, we're, we're members of the new covenant community who are the first glimpses of the new creation. And then in the future, if we're dead or if Jesus comes back before we die, all of a sudden we get glorified bodies. So the knee pain, the diabetes, all the issues that we have, no more conditions, Chandler. Um, we get glorified bodies. It's the full restoration. That's new creation. And that's that's been purchased by Jesus too. And the primary issue that we have with our bodies is because of sin. And that's what we see the cross taken care of. Uh, And we see a little glimpse of the new creation, right, when Jesus is doing what in his ministry? He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Like, he's giving us a glimpse of, like, hey, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what life is supposed to be like. All right, so uh, under number two, uh, one line, let's start with creation. And we'll just kinda of go through each of these. So now you know what two, three, four, and five are. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And let's just kind of walk through the storyline of scripture. As it's barreling down on Jesus. Like I want I want us to to talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment. But I primarily want to focus tonight on the storyline as it's presented in the Old Testament. I don't want to get too much into this is how Jesus has fulfilled this. We want to leave a little bit of that Old Testament climax, like we're looking for a Savior and this is what He should look like. I want to do that. And uh, I mean, so with creation, before we before we even get into creation, um, I I want us to understand. That the only scripture that the disciples had and the early church had to preach Christ was the Old Testament. And they preached Christ from the Old Testament. And so we can spend weeks and months and years only on the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds to three-quarters of our Bibles. Looking at Christ there. We don't see him in his fullness. Obviously, that's that's New Testament, right? But we see a pretty clear picture being presented in the Old Testament. So, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching to the Jews at Pentecost, what does he appeal to? Their knowledge of the Old Testament. He, He appeals to the Old Testament. That's right, their knowledge of the Old Testament. He's not—he's not like writing a divinely inspired letter and then reading it right there. He's pointing back to—and this is what David said, and this is what happened—the offspring of David, da da da, da—all this kind of stuff. He's getting it from the Old Testament. Paul, when he's refuting the Jews, in every (laughs) every city he went, when he would first go to um, the uh, whatever—I can't—I'm blanking on the establishment, Uh, not temple, but synagogue. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to every synagogue in every city, he started with the Jews first. And what did he do? He reasoned from the Old Testament, arguing that Christ was the fulfillment and that the resurrection that had been promised in the Old Testament had come in Christ. Um, and that's why he, he'll say, like, it's because of the resurrection that I'm here before y'all. And of course, he's trying to get a a fight going between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, but he really is. He's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imprisoned because I'm preaching the resurrection, the resurrection that the Old Testament promised. Now, what does he do, uh, however, when he goes to non-Jews? Um, he turns to the Gentiles in Acts 17. What, is, what does he do there, like at the Areopagus, Mars Hill? What does he appeal to Because they don't have any basis for, like, Old Testament. They don't know anything about Joel. They don't know anything about David. I mean, these Athenians are, like, pagan as pagan goes. And they've just got multiple gods. What does he appeal to? The unknown God. God. Yes. Who does he say that he is in Acts 17? Yeah. Yeah. So so he appeals to the Gentiles who don't know God. He ultimately appeals to God as the God who created everything. Hey, this God that's unknown that you worship, I'm here to tell you, he's the creator of everything. So Paul, when he's preaching to the Gentiles, doesn't start with the Old Testament per se, but you better believe he starts with Genesis 1 and 2. Because, I mean, that's what everybody has in common, right? Like, we're all, we're all here as a result of creation. So, he starts with Genesis 1 and 2. And so, what we need to do is we need to start with our Old Testaments, and we need to start with creation. And so, in creation, uh, what I want you to see is, uh, first and foremost, Genesis 1 and 2, God is clearly, clearly revealed and cast as the Creator. God is the creator. And that has massive, massive implications for how we live. I mean, you better believe, like, how is, I mean, you know, I don't mean to spoil the ending, but like, Drew's going to preach through Job, but how is God going to respond to Job and all of his miserable comforters? He's going to say... Where were you when I created the world? Like who are you to talk to me? Who are you to question what I've done with my creation? What do the prophets say? Like, God's a creator and and we're clay. We're like he could he can make us whatever he wants to. Paul picks up that same language in the New Testament. Like, like if in in Romans nine to eleven, like if he want if he wants to make some of us for honorable use, like for fine dining and 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 great. He has every right to. And if he wants to fashion some of us into like toilets, like he has every right to do so. Why? God is the creator. So that has massive, massive implications for understanding Adam and mankind and what Jesus is going to do. So God as creator is absolutely foundational. And so what we understand with God as creator This is a huge issue as it relates to understanding Buddhism or or speaking against Hinduism or Eastern spirituality or rejecting process theism. Whatever we're talking about, because God is the creator, He is not the creation. And He's not part of creation. He is wholly other he is what the bible would say is transcendent so god is creator and with god being the creator let's just understand okay if we want to get like super nerdy okay like god in terms of his attributes like who god is god is god is not creator ad intra or by virtue of his very being. He has not been eternally creator because there was a time where it was just him and no creation. But he became creator ad extra or by virtue of what he has done in terms of his operations. We're talking about Trinitarian language. So he became creator. He hasn't been eternally creator, but he became creator and now he is eternally creator from that point on, right? Uh, So, God is creator. That then gives us a clear creator-creature distinction. He is not to be confused with that which has been created. And this is going to be very, very important, this creator-creature distinction, if we are going to formulate an orthodox understanding of the two natures of Christ. This is really important with Christology. If God is wholly other, He can't be a blended composite, which is what a lot of heresies will say. He can't be a a blended composite and and be a faithful high priest and God. We have got to maintain Jesus is the eternal Son of God, person, the person of the Son, and He has always been the divine Son. He has not stopped being the divine Son. He has not stopped exercising His divine attributes, including in the Incarnation. So, Jesus, as He's being held by Mary, shortly after birth, the divine Son is upholding Mary by the word of his power. That divine son, who is in his human nature, being held as a baby, is literally holding the atoms of Mary together. Okay? Let that blow your head. So, creator-creature distinction is really important for understanding a right understanding, orthodox understanding of the two natures of Christ. Okay? Um And what we see in this creator-creature distinction in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see here that's so important, contrary to what we talked about last week with the Enlightenment and what modernism kind of put forth as a view of God, how did they cast Him? How did a lot of our founding fathers cast Him? Like a clockmaker he is a deistic view of god like he's detached he's definitely transcendent like he's not a part of the creation but he's in no way meaningfully involved but god as creator cast in the line of genesis 1 and 2 he is very very involved with his with his creation he is creating people in his image and he is giving them covenant commands. Um, and so, that's contra-like deism and liberal, liberal uh, theology as it relates to, to Christ. We see 2-3. Uh, we see in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, man as the image-bearer of God. And, and two really important aspects of... Um, of being an image bearer. There's, there's lots of debate. Well, what, is, what does image of God mean? Well, it means that like you have rationality. That's been a common... You have reason. That, that's what makes you in the image of God. Well, then the implication of that is, okay, well, does an unborn child... Are they human or not human? If, 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 if our image of God status is grounded in how, how well we think or how intelligent we are or our ability to rationalize, does, does that square with David saying, you formed me in, in, uh, in most parts of my mom? Is it, is it pri- tied primarily to what we do, like a functional view? of the image of God like what we do what about people who are paralyzed what about people who can't do what about people who die as infants if if our if our status as an image bearer of God is tied to what we do then people who can't do like elderly citizens we can just go ahead and put them to death and that's not a moral evil like we can go Dr. Kevorkian on them. I mean, some of you don't know who that is, but Dr. and Dr. Death, back in the 90s. We can put older people to death, and that's morally acceptable. Why? Because they have no function, right? That can't be it. That can't be it. Th- th- those speak to, like, glimpses of who we are. Uh, what about our relational uh, relational aspect of who we are? Yeah, but, like, what, what if... Are we, is our image of God tied to how many relationships we have or don't have? Do we have relationships when we're unborn? Um, so, with man as image bearer, what that, what that entails, in the blessing that God gives in Genesis 1, 26-28, we see what these two aspects. We see sonship and we see rule. Sonship and rule, and what that then works itself out in terms of how we can consider ourselves is we are made image bearers, we are vice regents, we are are ambassadors who rule on God's behalf in the world, and so between sonship and rule, sonship Sonship has everything to do with our relationship with God. We were made a son. I don't mean like you who are women. like we're, This is not a misogynistic thing. Sonship in terms of ancient Near Eastern understandings. In ancient Near Eastern uh, context, only the king was the son of God. But when Moses is saying that we're, we are sons of God, Adam was a son of God, Made in the image of likeness of God Seth was born in the image and likeness of Adam. And then we see in Luke's, Luke's genealogy tracing all the way back Jesus all the way back, and it says, in the son of Adam, Seth, the son of Adam, Adam, the Son of God. The sonship language is tied to our, our relationship with the Lord. We were made to live in covenant relationship with our Creator God. And in an ancient Near Eastern context, If only the king, like Pharaoh, was the son of God, what is Moses saying when he is saying all of us enjoy the status as image bearers? Yeah, yeah, equality, but like our status. Like we're all royalty. Not just some of us are divas. All of us are theological divas. I'm trying to... Cast in the context of language that Chandler will understand. So we're all, we're all royalty. So should it surprise you then that the Lord Yahweh talks about Israel and he says, you are a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood. That's coming from here. That's coming from our status as image bearers. It's not just the king of the ancient Near Eastern context. That's, that's the son of God. It's all people who, who enjoy this status by virtue of our relationship with the Lord. And then in terms of rule, exercise dominion. Be fruitful, multiply, spread my image all over the place, just like ancient Near Eastern kings would do. They put statues everywhere and say, this belongs to me, just so you know. This is my statue. If you want to pick a fight, you're picking a fight with me. Like, this is, this is my image here. Well, the Lord is doing that with people. And he's casting us all over the place. And we're supposed to spread. And what is he doing in the earth by doing that? He's saying, all of it belongs to me. Everything's mine. Look at all my images everywhere. Doing exactly what, I'm, what they're supposed to be doing. Exercising my rule. Be fruitful, multiply. Subdue the earth. Exercise dominion over it. That's, that's a covenant blessing-command given to Adam and given to Noah. And both of those covenants are universal. Adam is the head of the human race. And Noah was the head of everybody else who survived after the flood. And so sonship and rule, which means like we were meant to. We were meant to uh, to represent God. As like a foreign ambassador in and in like a U.S. ambassador in France, U.S. ambassador in France speaks with the authority of the president of the united states he represents the american people in a foreign nation and as image bearers we represent god in creation and we are to rule as god would rule as god does rule in creation so if we're talking about like environmental things should we be taking care of the earth absolutely we should i mean people are more important than sharks because sharks don't bear God's image. People, only people do. But, but we do need to take care of the creation that God has entrusted to us. In the way that he, he would. He feeds all of them. He feeds the sparrows. We don't think about sparrows. He thinks about them. We're to, we're to live as vice regents. So when we're talking about image of God, we're talking about our image bearer, we're talking about sonship, we're talking about rule, vice regent. What I want you to notice is that both of these, and this is in in your your blank, the image of God has two aspects. It has a vertical aspect, and it has a horizontal aspect. All of this is so very important to think about as we're thinking about the storyline coming to Jesus and what Jesus has done. Colossians 1, he is the Jesus, the Son, Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Paul is picking up this language. He is the image of the invisible God. He is what Adam should have been. So what does that mean? in the way that he related to God in his vertical relationship as an image bearer and how he related to, horizontally, to creation and other, crea- uh, other image bearers. So... When we think about what is the great, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. If you do those things, you fulfill what? You fulfill the law. Did love God and love neighbor start in the gospels? Did love God, love your neighbor, start in the old covenant? It didn't start in the old covenant. Where did it start? Being an image bearer. You were made to love God, love your neighbor. So, what do you think happens? What do you think happens when sin comes in? The vertical foundation starts to. The vertical has been cut. And what about horizontal? Do people live with each other the way that they should? No. Right? So sin has affected every aspect of who we are as image bearers. Hadn't destroyed it. We haven't lost God's image. Has been tarnished. Has been corrupted. it Has been polluted. And it's been polluted in in the fact that we don't relate to God as we ought to. And we don't relate to others as we should. And we don't relate to creation as well either. That's why I like People don't care about destroying creation if it means earning a buck. They don't care about flooding on James Island if it means that they can make millions of dollars. I won't be here. Those people have to deal with it. I'll get my check. Right? Like, that's sin. That's sin at the, at the, at the very base level, basic level. Image of God. Failing to love your covenant God. Failing to love other image bears, and so um what we're going to what we're going to do with creation over the weeks is we're going to trace we're going to trace um a or Adam atom, atom topology Uh, And so, when we look at creation, and we see Adam, how is Adam functioning? Uh, He's, yes, the first man, first son. Is it only that he's just the first guy? Like, wow, lucky, you're the first in line. Or is there more to it than that? He's a type. That's exactly right. But but how is he cast? Right. I mean, we weren't there. We weren't there, right? He's our representative. So, like, theologians would talk about Adam being our federal head or our covenant head. And so, with Adam functioning as our federal head, as our representative... And uh, when you think about Adam and you think about the rest of the Old Testament, you think about Jesus because we're standing on this side of the cross. The threefold office of Christ, we've talked about it before. Prophet, priest, and king. Do you see that? Do you see that in Adam? How do you, how do you, how do you see Adam as the king? Well, first, he's an image bearer, so there's... there's Exercise dominion. Subdue the earth. But as as the head of the human race, he's naming Eve. He's naming creation. This is all before sin. Right? So he's functioning as a king. How's he functioning as a prophet? Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence... In, in In the text Genesis one and two, that that God is talking to Eve directly and giving her commands. That's why Paul will say, Eve was deceived, but Adam transgressed. Adam disobeyed. Eve was deceived. Why? She didn't know better. But Adam willfully disobeyed because he knew the command and he didn't obey. So he was he was he, gave, he did speak a word to Eve. We know because she was like, hey, you're, we're not even supposed to touch it. And we don't know if Adam didn't do a great job or she didn't do a good job listening. This is all prior to sin, so I don't want to speculate. Uh, but we see a prophetic nature. He's giving, he is proclaiming God's word to God's people. And a priestly function, what do the priests do? Right. Mediating God's presence, right? Like you can't you can't enjoy God's presence without a priest. And so, did Adam enjoy God's presence in the garden? Absolutely, he did. Absolutely, did. And so, you see Adam functioning. It, it, again, we're not like, wow, he's like Melchizedek. You know, we're not, we're not looking at it like that. We're looking at, what does the text say? How is it building it across the storyline? And, okay, there are some shadowy ways in which these things are pointing to Jesus, helping us to understand the work that Jesus did. Because if we're going to understand Adam as a type, we've got to understand what Adam did and who he is, right? So, again, federal... not doesn't start with a T. Federal headship... Which, implu- which entails representation, right? Um, <clears throat> prophet, priest, king. Son of God. And so, when we start to understand these things that Adam, and the rest of humanity, but Adam in particular, was made to, to in, in this particular way, to enjoy a particular kind of special relationship with the Creator, God, that the rest of creation does not enjoy. Just by virtue of Adam and Eve being image bears and Adam being the federal head. We can then start to realize why sin is so terrible. Because, like, sharks didn't disobey, and then not at all be made in God's image, not being made sons of God, not being prophet, priest, and king, not at all representing the rest of sharkdom or humanity. But Adam, made in God's image, made to enjoy God's presence, given God's word for him to live, enjoying the fullness of God's rest on day seven and beyond. Enjoying God's place, uninterrupted, just pleasure and joy in the Lord's presence, and he rejected it, and then cast the entire rest of the world into what we have today. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, like, creation groans. Creation groans for the restoration of the of the sons of God. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The start of sickness. Sin affects us, body and soul. We're embodied people, so um, I think counseling is good. Because we, we, need to, we need to help people to think rightly and to believe rightly. But then I also think that medications can be really good, too. Because I don't think that cancer is necessarily the result of somebody's sin. But rather sin generally. We want to we wanna treat the physical body and the spiritual component or immaterial aspect of somebody. Um, because we are embodied people. We are a psychosomatic unity. Um, so that being said, when sin corrupts us, it doesn't just corrupt us in that we age or that we get broken legs or we get cancer, but it affects every single aspect of who we are. There's nothing in us that's, that's not touched by sin, corrupted by sin, polluted by sin. And so the way that we think, people don't naturally think rightly about God, or about themselves. I mean, we haven't lost the image of God, and so in some ways we can think, we can build nice buildings. We can do fantastic things in civilization. We cannot be, think our way rightly into a relationship with the Lord because sin has corrupted the way that we think and what we believe. It's corrupted our bodies, and so we age, we get sick, and we die. All of that starts in Genesis 3. And so Adam, what, what's the command to Adam. Be be fruitful, multiply, right? Uh, What happens when Adam sins? What do he and Eve do? They hide. Why? They were were naked and ashamed, right? Okay, and so then, uh, post-fall, we see Noah. And how is Noah cast in Genesis 9? The the Lord is destroyed. First off, Genesis 6, he's, he's a righteous man. This is not because he's perfect. Because sin has entered the world and messed up everybody. But in terms of comparing him to the rest of the world, Noah is a man of faith. He is a man of righteousness. Him and his family are saved, chosen by the Lord, just by grace, chosen by the Lord, and in a sense, restarting creation, right? In Genesis 9, we see all the flood and mortars go away and all that kind of stuff. God makes a covenant with him, never going to destroy the world by flood again. And here's the sign of the covenant. Rainbow, which he still keeps, and he still shows his covenant faithfulness to us. Uh, and what is the command he gives to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Same command as to Adam. Is Noah the head of an entire new humanity? Yeah. Is he the head over an entirely new creation? Not in the same way that it's not quite what Eve Eden was. But it's, it's really, really like similar, like man. Okay, there's still sin, but man, oh man, a lot of similarities. Same command. What what happens with Noah and the command? Same result as Adam, right? What happens? He sins, and what's the result? Sins with fruit, and what what what's what's the result? Genesis nine. He gets drunk. God. He gets drunk. Well, yes, that's true. He gets drunk, but in Genesis 9, he gets drunk. He takes the fruit, sins with the fruit, very similar to like his father, Adam. But what's the result? What happened with Adam and Eve after they sinned? What do they do? They were naked and ashamed. What's the description of Noah in the tent? He is naked. He is naked. And his son, Ham, like he's bringing some shame on him. Like he's naked and ashamed. Do you think Moses intends for us to see Noah like Adam? Yes, I think he absolutely does. There's not necessarily escalation here, but there's just like, okay, Noah's a new Adam. And then, and then who, who's next? Abraham, right? what's God going to give Abraham he's going to give him a son but he's also leading him where he's going to give him a place right where he's going to enjoy God's presence Adam had a place right and uh, what what's the promise what's the promise to Abraham through this offspring? Bless the nations right but how like what what uh how many offspring is he going to have? Like, clearly there's one. Yeah, like, more in the stars in the heaven and, and the uh, sand on the seashore. Like, I'm going to make so many descendants from you. Kings are going to come from you, Abraham. And he says, he says, gives the command, the blessing command to Abraham, too be fruitful multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Same thing's picked up with Israel, right? Who, is, who, does Israel, or who does God say Israel is when he tells Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my blank go. My people, but he says, I will kill your firstborn. Let my, let my firstborn go. Let my son go. Let Israel go. I mean, so we see this sonship, fruitful multiply, being brought into God's place, enjoying God's rest. Israel, eventually we see it with David. What does David provide the people of Israel that no judge before them could really ever provide with, like, totality? What did David give them from their enemies? He gave them rest. He, 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 he conquered all of God's enemies. And, and during David's reign, like, the people enjoyed rest. And that extends into Solomon. Like, that's meant to point back, right? So this, this topology, like, again, this is biblical interpretation at the canonical level. We're zooming out and saying, what did God intend in Genesis 1 and 2? And wow, this guy looks a lot like that guy from Genesis 2. But the problem is, is that they're all, all complete failures, right? They're all sinners. They all fail to achieve God's standard. And what is what is God's standard in in the uh, garden? What is what is the law? It's God Himself. God's the standard. Is that something that any any man can attain? Only God can save So then we start to see Genesis 15, that that Drew's outlined, that I've outlined before in sermons, and we see Yahweh walking through the, the, the chopped up beasts in that covenant ceremony. And all of a sudden we start to see a glimpse. Okay, that is the result of sin. These carcasses cut in half. But Abraham's not walking through the middle of them. God is, ma- God is walking through. It's actually, it's a smoking pot and a torch, which was the Lord right to Israel. He was a flame and a, and a mist. That's Yahweh. Israel should be like, that's the guy who saved us. Yahweh is walking, through, passing between the meats, right? And what is he doing? He is saying, he's already promised a son. But what is he saying in Genesis 15? Passing through those, those pieces of the bull? By himself in his covenant promise with Abraham. He's taking the curse on himself. He is guaranteeing the promises of the covenant. He's like, I am going to do it. I mean, just little glimpses. And we haven't even gotten out of the first 15, 16 chapters of Genesis. And already God is making these massive promises. That through, again, progressive revelation across the Old Testament canon understanding the progression of the story through the biblical covenants, and we begin to see greater and greater clarity. Um, All right, so we see in creation that creation establishes. I just want to hit a few highlights that I have here in my notes that are not underlined so you can write or not write as much as you want or as little as you want. The God of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, creation establishes and identifies the God of Scripture. He is the covenant Lord. God is the Lord. That's who He is. He is sovereign and absolute. He brings order where there is chaos. He speaks and things come out of nothing into existence. He is the covenant Lord. So He's not just a clockmaker up there zapping with His finger. He is, he is transcendent, yes, creator, creature, distinction. But He is eminent. He is near to his people. He is exhaustively sovereign, but he is in the garden with Adam, giving him commands, and Adam is enjoying his presence. God is personal, and he is moral. So when we understand sin, we understand that, that sin is a moral rebellion against God himself. So when we start thinking about God's wrath and what Jesus did in the work of christ later on we will need to understand that god's wrath against sin is not impersonal it's not like well you did that and you shouldn't have but like that's fine i mean we can sweep it under the rug or i can relax the law and let you in or i can minimize sin it's not a big deal or i can just save everybody just by hey you're forgiven like no that's like that's a terrible judge it's an imperfect god that's a terrible god moral personal moral rebellion against a personal god Who made you for covenant relationship. And what is the wrath? Yes it is giving you over to the consequences of your sin. But it is God's intentional. Personal. Outpouring of his holy just wrath. Against sin. And that should inform the cross. But we're just starting to see glimpses of it in creation and fall. God is holy. Something has to die. In the garden for him to cover Adam and Eve. So we're already starting to see substitution. We're already starting to see the result. Adam and Eve died when they sinned. They didn't physically die. They didn't die physically immediately. But what happened to them? They got booted out of God's presence, right? That's the fall. Genesis 3. They're naked, ashamed after sin. They have dishonored God. They have wronged Him. They have morally rebelled. And so what are they doing? what happens to them in the, in in terms of the garden do they enjoy eden anymore they lose it guys wake up y'all got to y'all got to y'all know this stuff this is genesis 3 come on what does he do to adam and eve titus he kicks them out of the garden that's exactly right what does he warn israel if you don't repent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of warning through the prophets Obey the covenant. Return to the covenant. Be faithful to the covenant that I made with you. Or I will do what? I will vomit you out of the land. Or the land will vomit you out. I'll kick you out of the land. And so what is Israel in exile is very similar to Adam in exile. Right? And then we start to understand, oh, what did God do with us? Were we living in exile apart from Christ? Yeah, we were. But he's bringing us back. He's taking us back to the promised land. But it's not, it's not in the Middle East. It's something far better than that. It's a new creation. That's what we're going to enjoy pretty soon if we, don't, if we hold fast. If we don't give up. That's what he's going to return us to. What Edom, Better than what Edom was. And we're going to enjoy that forever. Why? Because we have a new Adam who is faithful and obedient. And he represents us. And rather than us dying, he died in our place. All right, so Genesis 3, we see the fall. And we start to see the beginnings of some Adam topology. We see divine judgment. We see death enter into the world after the fall. And we see um, <clears throat> God had, wrath is not an attribute of God. God has not been eternally wrathful. He was not eternally wrathful, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before creation. Right? Who would who'd have been the object of His wrath before creation? But was God, has God been eternally holy and righteous and just? but I believe it. So we begin in Genesis 3 with death entering and something dying and skin covering, we start to see really for the first time an expression of God's just nature, his holy nature, and we begin to see glimpses of wrath. After the fall, we see judgment. We see it certainly see it in the in the flood, right? As an expression of his moral rejection of sin. And so, like, throughout the, at, throughout the uh, rest of the Old Testament, ultimately the issue that is, that is, should be the question behind every story with God's people. And, and that story is How can a holy God live with a sinful people? It's often called the problem of forgiveness. How can He live with us? Throughout the Old Testament, that's the issue. How can He live with us? We are moral rebels, covenant partners who were disobedient, broken the covenant. How are we to live with a Perfectly righteous, holy God. If he doesn't punish our sin, is he just and righteous and holy? No, he's not. But if he punishes us and crushes us as his holy, just, righteousness, a righteous character and nature demands, how are we going to live with him? And that's the problem of forgiveness that Paul addresses in Romans 3. In Christ, God is both just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our propitiation. Do we know that term, propitiation? What does it mean? We know it, but we can't quite wrap our mind around it. You're so close, Titus. (laughs) substitutionary atonement uh yes that does what that takes the place yeah there you go you're getting really close to it satisfies the demands <laughs> all right final jeopardy everybody fails you were so you were so close so close And we're going to hammer it in the work of Christ uh, later on. But uh, in Romans 3, propitiation, Jesus is turning God's wrath off of us. He is propitiating God so that wrath is turned. That's the normal use of propitiate in, in the Greek, is to turn someone's wrath by doing what? By covering sin, taking away sin as our substitute. Satisfying God's righteous demands in terms of a penal, penal substitute or a the penalty of our sin, He has said Jesus has satisfied it, but He's also satisfied the righteous demands of the law. And so again, old Old Testament throughout the Old Testament, we see the fall working itself out. Cain kills Abel. Lamech kills a man, marries two. Two women. We already see murder, sexual morality, all kinds of stuff, and we're one chapter in after sin. And then we see a worldwide flood, and in Genesis, we see uh, the exodus. We see Israel is as terrible as Egypt is. They are even worse than the nations around them. How in the world is God going to keep his promise to bring a son through these people, that is going to satisfy his, his very character, his righteous standards, but who is also going to allow, somehow, these awful, I mean God-awful people, to live with him. How does Israel be, How is Israel able to enjoy it initially while they're in the land? How are they able to enjoy God's presence? sacrifices the temple tabernacle the tent of meaning the priesthood why if you're going to have a relationship with the lord the sovereign lord and creator your sin has to be dealt with what does your sin demand in that in that day that you eat of the fruit you will surely die death has to occur uh, I am pretty sure I stated it this past Sunday in preaching in Leviticus. I think it was Leviticus seventeen. That life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. And in the sacrifice, that life is, is extinguished. And that blood covers you, and you now have life. So I can live with you because something other than you is dying for you. And so that sacrifice, which we still we see Genesis three. Something died to give them skins to be covered. And then we see Adam and Eve offering sacrifices, people offering sacrifices, Abraham. And then there's the Levitical sacrificial system to, in, to give a really, really specific picture of what life with God demands. And that is, if I'm going to live with a sinful people, sin's got to be dealt with. And we see it in the Passover. And the author of Hebrews is going to, like, well, first off, John the Baptist is going to tell us when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what else? Levitical sacrificial system, high priesthood. We then start to understand Jesus' work in in light of these structures that are given in the Old Covenant, right? That's the author of Hebrews. He's like, you need to understand the nature of the atonement and the extent of the atonement and the high priesthood of Christ in light of the Old Covenant. That's how you need to understand it. And it's all there in the Old Testament. These guys are just doing biblical theology and coming to theological conclusions. All right, so we we see this moving. And then we see redemption. We'll start redemption, and we'll pick it up next week. All right. We see redemption, and this is what happens in the Old Testament. The picture that we have here is we have um, human history, storyline of Scripture. You've got creation. The fall. And throughout the Old Testament time, biblical authors and prophets are talking about uh, this future day, this day of salvation. And so, this is from this point on, like this is Old Testament times, right? And this is what we would consider the present age. And this is, this is from the perspective of the Old Testament. Old Testament authors, Old Testament writers. Again, we have a better perspective because we're on this side of the cross. But this is how they're seeing salvation history. This is how they're casting it. There's creation, then there's fall, then there's, there's present age. And what, do, what does Israel begin to anticipate with the Davidic king and the prophets Talking about a future what or future who to come. Messiah, future king, all these. And when that guy comes, boom, we're gonna have whoo new creation. We're gonna have like glorification. We're gonna see judgment against sin. We're going to, I mean, we're going to, we're going to see, and we're gonna have those <laughs> that, that, that's exactly right, that is exactly right, we're going to see, yeah, we're going to have salvation, there's going to be a new exodus, oh my goodness, when this guy comes, but, 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 we, we've already said it, we've already said it, Genesis 15, and then in, and then in, in, into the prophets, what does the Lord start to say? I mean, the, the people show themselves to be miserable savi- saviors. Like they could not find their way out of a wet paper bag of sin. Right? There's no way that these people are going to save themselves. So what does the Lord say? He's like, I'm, I'm going to come and save my people. So in the Old Testament, we start to see who will save God's people and Yahweh says, I will. I will save my people. But how do you balance? The offspring of the, of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, through your, through your offspring, all the nations are going to be blessed. Hey, David, I'm going to give you a son. And he's going to rule forever. Hey, Isaiah, this coming servant of the Lord. He's going to be the king. And then people are going to call him. Everlasting father. King of kings. Hey, Daniel. There's coming this guy. He's the son of man. He's going to approach the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is going to give him a kingdom. And this son of man will defeat sin and death and he'll give the kingdom to his people. Isaiah is like, hey, the servant of the Lord, he's going to be crushed for your sin. He's going to be born and he's going to be Israel. And he's going to save Israel from their sins. He's not going to just save Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations. But there's not going to be anything special about him. In terms of his appearance. He's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be well acquainted with grief. And it's going to be the Lord's good pleasure to crush him. So that his people might be forgiven. But don't worry. He will see, he will see his offspring. How do you make that work? Do you see all these problems that before Jesus, people who trusted God by faith to the degree that He had revealed Himself himself to them through whatever covenant they were under, do you see how they were like, how can you live with me? How are you going to come and save me? I look at David's sons and they're just they're awful. I'm not even in the land. I'm in Babylon. Are you gonna keep your promises? And the prophets and the old testament authors, they look at this and they see, they see one event. Where Yahweh and he's 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 considered father here, but then there's this then there's, there's this king. There's there's this king. He's a son of David. He's he's considered God's son in Second Samuel seven. He's a son, and and he's gonna be the he's gonna be the uh, the sh- Jesse shoot or the the shoot from a uh, Jesse stump. The Davidic dynasty will look like they're dead. And I'm going to bring a shoot out of what is dead. And he's going to be a king. And he's going to bring the full forgiveness of sins. And the Old Testament looks at this, and they say, we're in the present age. And when this king king comes, he's going to bring all this in. All of this. But then... We see in the Old Testament, we have the human history, we see creation, we see the fall, we see the Old Testament age, and what they saw as one event, we now see as two events, And we're living in this age right here. And here's a new creation. Man, new Exodus, resurrection of the dead. Like, man, no more death, no more sickness. Salvation will have come in its fullness. And in many ways, it's, it, I've said it before, but in, in the Old Testament, when, when these Old Testament writers like Isaiah are looking like, and they're like, you know, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb when the Davidic king comes. And the little kid is going to put his hand in an adder's nest, and he's not going to get bitten. And all these wonderful things are going to happen. And he's seeing it as one event, what he thinks, what he perceives to be one event. But reality, it's it's almost like it's almost like there being two mountains, and the prophets are looking at this one mountain, and this one's right behind it, same shape, same height, and what they perceive to be one event, because they only see this one. Christ comes and we see it's two events. We see the first event. He's got to deal with our main problem. If we're going to have this, sin has to be dealt with. And then we live in this present age. So called the last days. We've been living in it for a couple thousand years now. And this is, this is the return. The return of the king, right? And so what they, they saw as one single salvation event in the New Testament, it's cast as two different events. Why? Because in order for you to have all of these things, in order for you to have all of this stuff, Genesis 3 has got to be dealt with. Sin has got to be dealt with. And it's got to be better than a temple where priests day after day after day after day offer sacrifices for sin and every year they kill one goat for the sins of the people and put the sins of the people on another goat and send it into the wilderness. It's, it's, there's got to be something better than that because they got to keep doing it. It never ends. And it outlives the priest because the priests die. The priests die. They've got to offer sacrifices for their own sins first before they can even represent the people and mediate for them. And they got to do it over and over and over and over again. And we see in the Levitical sacrificial system this clear picture, but the problem is, is that it can't take away sin. cannot take away sin. And that's the problem of Genesis 3 throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the fall. It's got to be dealt with. And so now, between these two comings, the first coming and the second coming, you have, you have people who have enjoyed the first fruits, glimpses of this new creation. We've been made new creations, we've been raised with Christ uh, spiritually, and we've been set free from sin. And now we preach the gospel so that people might believe. And repent and be able to enjoy this forever. And we're in this period of grace. where We're calling all men to repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. But we, we, can only, we can only have good news, a gospel proclamation. Today is the day of salvation. If we have this Yahweh king who will come as he promised and deal with our problem. That's the problem of forgiveness. And so that's, that's, that's the barreling down of redemption. Redemption is, is God saving His people through payment by price. It's a marketplace term, redemption. Kind of like redeeming a coupon. You've got to pay something. It's going to co- it's, it, it's cost you something to redeem whatever you're redeeming. And to redeem a people... From their sins. It's got to be be a redemption work. That's done by someone. Who can endure God's wrath. Forever. And exhaust it. Which is only the Lord. But he's got to be a man. He's got to be a son. He's got to be an image bearer like me. Like he's got to be a new Adam. He's got to be the obedient one. in, In the garden. When he was tempted. When he's tempted by the serpent. He's he's got to obey the Lord. Not disobey. He's got to live. In complete righteousness. And he needs to take the penalty. That is due me. Because of God's righteous standards. And the only way. That God's going to be able. To have someone exhaust his own wrath. And that person not be in hell forever. uh, Is by God taking his own wrath. He's got to be the Davidic son. He's got to come from Israel. He's got to be a blessing to the nations. And and then that's when you see Jesus come on the scene. Genealogies from David, genealogies from Israel, genealogies from Adam, all these things. He's cast as a bridegroom. He's cast as the Redeemer. He's cast as the son of David. He identifies himself as Yahweh. They want to stone him for it. Hey, you're, you're not even 50 years old. How do you know what Abraham, how Abraham reacted well before Abraham was I am? And that's really the picture of the Old Testament up, up into the cross. And this is just obviously a snapshot from our end. This is, this is the cross. This is the return in the new creation. But the cross has got to happen first. So we see all the Old Testament is barreling down on the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it, the law, the sacrificial systems, the events, the people, all of them are finding their yes and amen in Him. Um, and so we'll, turn, we'll, we'll finish up with that next week, and we'll turn to um, looking at the deity of Christ and how He revealed Himself uh, next week. Any, any questions before we close? Uh Annalise, you mind passing that make sure it's on. Yes, Chandler. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's green. Yeah, so that's, there's a distinction between ad intra and ad extra uh, attributes. So God has eternally been holy, just, righteous, perfectly loving. That's who He is ontologically in His being, regardless of what He has done outside of Himself. But then He chooses to operate in the world. And we're not going to say He's the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, because then, if that's the case and we're understanding it that way, then he really can't do anything. Because if he does anything, then that somehow changes how he's perceived. Or who he, who he is or how we're to relate to him. And so that's really more of like, my moral character does not change. My nature does not change. And it didn't. It, it doesn't. Wrath is an expression of aspects of his nature. I mean, really... Wrath is an exp- a perfect expression of all of his, all of his attributes, and all of his nature. He's perfectly loving and pouring out wrath, just like he's perfectly just and pouring out wrath, perfectly holy. All those things. Hopefully that answers your question. Any question? Any other questions? Before I pray. Okay, let's pray.